Hey everyone, welcome back to our teaching on the book of Acts. Um, Acts is this narrative where Luke is recording all these different stories, these real things that happen to real people in real places. And our story today is found in Acts chapter 3 and most of chapter 4. And there's a lot that goes on in this story. We won't be able to look at every detail, but let me retell it for you here really quickly. Peter and John are going to the temple to worship. They're going to pray and they're going to worship God. And as they go there, they see this lame beggar who is sitting there asking for alms, begging for money. And he, it says in the story that he has been uh, lame since birth and he's over 40 years old and he has regularly year after year been sitting in the same spot asking for money. He sees Peter and John and he asks them, he says, hey, do you have silver and gold? Can you give me some money? And Peter says, we don't have any money. And they probably didn't, they had no money. But Peter says, listen, here's what I can give you rise in the name of Jesus of Nazareth and be healed. And he just grabs his hand and he pulls him up. And, and it says in the Greek there, it says that the man was instantly healed. It even says that he can like jump around and he can walk around and he, he's with them basically for the rest of the story. He's walking along with them. He is miraculously healed. All the people see this, right? They've seen this guy there day after day, year after year, and now they see, okay, this guy is healed. And so Peter um, preaches a sermon, talks about Christ and how they rejected him and how now they should turn in faith to him. And it says that as the religious leaders are coming, they are uneasy and they don't know what, what is this teaching that's going on. And they want to arrest. They actually do arrest them. And in the process, it says 5,000 men believe. And so that doesn't even include the women, right? So we're talking thousands of people that believe. So in chapter two, we saw 3,000 plus believed. And then it says that God added to their number day after day. And now here, 5,000 plus are believing. So this is a, a growing movement of people that are following not John, not Peter. They're following Jesus of Nazareth. So they go with the religious leaders, they're arrested, they're taken in, put in prison for the night. And the next day, the religious leaders look and they ask them, what are you doing? And Peter uses this opportunity again to clearly tell them with conviction and even with a little bit of confrontation what it is that they have been uh, doing and what they've been saying and that this guy, this lame man was healed by the power of Jesus. And so the religious leaders kind of wrestle over this internally. And then ultimately they say, okay, don't talk about this anymore. You can go, but stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about this, this message that he's the Messiah, that he's here to save people. Just go. And they essentially say, hey, thanks for letting us go, but we cannot not talk about Jesus. They go back to the believers. They gather around. They all pray for each other. And here's what they pray for. They pray for boldness to be able to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to those around them. And as they do that, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them. And it says that the ground shakes and they're ready to be sent out again. Hey, so one of the things that we see here is that the work of Jesus Christ continues. So we've been seeing that 
Christ in chapter 1 ascends to, to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2, and now we see actually the promises that Jesus had given were, were coming to reality. So in John chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So in John, Jesus already is, is telling them, telling the disciples, saying, hey, there's going to come a day where you're going to do the work that I'm doing here. And it's even going to be greater than that. Now, now, Jesus wasn't saying that they were going to be like God or they were going to be gods in their own way. What he's saying is, my ministry is is tied to my body and to a certain place. So Jesus never went outside of, you know, um, Jerusalem and, and Israel. He never went outside of those borders. But what we'll see in the book of Acts is the work that the apostles do spreads throughout the Roman Empire. And, and even today, the work of Christ continues throughout the world. It's, it's all over the place. And this is what Jesus was trying to get into their mind, and now they're actually seeing it happen. So the disciples, in, in many ways, mirror the work of Christ. You know, just as, as Christ healed people in his ministry, now we see Peter healing this lame man. And not just the physical healing of people. It's not just going to be that. It's actually going to be more than that. We see a little glimpse of it in chapter 3, starting in verse 19. It says this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This definitely has hints of the, uh, messianic promise, you know, of a day where Christ will come and be here and there'll be total refreshment, and he will rule. But there's also a promise here for those who are listening to the message that the disciples are preaching. It's this, that not only can God bring physical healing to you, he can actually bring a refreshment to your soul. This word that's used in the Greek, I won't try to pronounce it because it's really strange, but it, it means this, it means a cooling or a relief or breathing room. Peter's saying, listen, what, what we're coming, the message we're coming with is not just that people would be healed on the spot, it's that every single person, whether they're lame like this beggar or just a healthy person, can actually experience the refreshing presence of Jesus in their life. Man, aren't we all needing that, especially in the day that we're living in? But, but even just with the stresses of life, the, the pain of loss that we experience, the, the brokenness in, in our own lives and in the lives of our families and our communities, we need this refreshing presence of Christ to come into our lives. And this is what Peter is offering. But the shocking thing for those that are seeing this is that it's Peter and John, essentially. That God would actually choose to use these individuals, these kinds of people. And so the, the religious leaders are looking, and they're looking first at this lame man, and they're saying, this is like, this is this lame beggar who's been here for decades now, and he's healed. Okay, they're wondering about that. Then they see that, okay, that it's, Peter and 
John and, and look at chapter 4, verse 13. Look at their response to this. It says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They were shocked that this is Peter and John. They were used to this idea that um, educated, religious people, those who have it together, those whose lives are, are, you know, everything's clicking along nicely, they're healthy, they're strong, they have the answers for every problem. Those are the kinds of people that God is using. But here we begin to see this principle that is it's throughout the Bible, it's throughout human history that God uses weak people. God uses the foolish things of the world to bring to nothing the things that the world sees as wise. And um, recently I watched a, uh, a little talk that Tim Keller gave on, it was actually on the how to have hope in times of fear. And he was talking more broadly than just about this idea of kind of um, knowledge and um, being able to solve all of our problems. But he did say that, you know, we are living in this time period. It's, you know, post-enlightenment, these last two, three hundred years where we have been thinking of the problems of the world in, in a very linear fashion. So we've been seeing that, hey, as technology grows, we will solve our problems and, you know, we will be able to get to this utopian um, society someday. And, and he says, you know, that took a, a bit of a pause, um, you know, during the World War One, the Depression, World War Two, But then after that, kind of this rise of affluence and technology, again, got us thinking like everything's kind of going up. Everything's getting better. We're getting smarter. We're getting more technology. And someday we'll be able to kind of figure out any problem that is before us. And one of the things that we are seeing in and our understanding is that, man, we are enjoying some of the amazing benefits of technology and learning and, you know, centuries of of these ideas kind of progressing. Um, we're seeing that more and more people are educated, more and more people are living longer, more and more people, you know, have uh, wealth and income. But on, this, on the flip side of it, we're also seeing, especially in the last decades, this rise in depression, this rise in suicide, this rise in the in the breakdown of family units and of, of different societies this this broadening gap between the wealthy and the poor and and now we're faced with this um tiny virus you know this covid 19 virus that um, is able to spread around the globe because of all the infrastructure that we have to be able to fly from here to australia in a day and that is able to then um, attack people all over the world, no matter what our level, you know, in society is. It is, um, it, it's able to attack anybody. And so this idea of knowledge and technology has always been a temptation for mankind. It's always been a temptation for all of us. And it's not that God is against being smart. It's not that God is against um, intelligent ideas. We'll see um, in just a few chapters that God is going to choose 
uh, Saul, who most of the world knows as the Apostle Paul. And he's going to use this brilliant man to bring the gospel to Gentiles around the Roman Empire. And, and he's going to use him to write large portions of the Bible that people are still studying to this day. You know, and we know many people who are great thinkers. You know, I think of people like C.S. Lewis and his writings, or I think of Ravi Zacharias, and there's many intelligent people. So God is not against, you know, knowledge and learning, but what God um, is showing us here in this story, and this is just, again, one time that it's coming up, but what he's showing us here is that we can make knowledge, we can make ideas, we can make people idols. And those then can become and take the place of God. And here in this story, God is trying to get the religious leader's attention. And he's still today trying to get our attention saying, and he wants to tell us, he basically wants to say, I can use anybody. I can use the people who society would deem as weak, as uneducated, common, ignorant, that's what they were calling them. But also he can use the brilliant, he can use the, the educated one, like the Apostle Paul, which we'll get to that. But this is, the, this is the big idea here that Luke is really trying to get us to wrestle over and, and to understand and appreciate and to believe in is that God has a plan for every person who is committed to him. And that plan is that they are going to be used by him. So here we see that the disciples, Peter and John, um, they are rightfully called uneducated. They are common men. But look at this, it says, after it kind of gives that description, it says also that they recognize that they had been with Jesus. These leaders, they're like, man, these guys are not smart. These guys are like super common. They're not like us. They're totally different. But they have been with Jesus. And this is the message that we are should be hearing loud and clear. You know, it doesn't depend on all the different variables of what you're like or, or what your personality is like. God can use you. God can use me. People whose hearts are committed to him. And so this theme is going to be repeated throughout the book of Acts. That there are going to be people that, the, especially the religious people, but people in general would look at them and they would say, you know, God's blessings are not for them, but God continually reaches these people and their lives are changed. So we think of the lame beggar here. We think of the Ethiopian eunuch. We'll get to that story. We think of different women that are, that are going to be influential in the book of Acts. We think of all the different Gentiles that are going to come to faith. And here God is saying over and over and over again, this is my story and I can use anybody. So as we move along here, we see that the religious leaders are faced with this decision and, and they're, they're literally having to make a choice. Do we uh, agree with what we're seeing or do we reject it? And so in chapter 4, verse 11, it says this, This Jesus, and this is Peter saying to them, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. So Peter is, is clearly laying out for them saying, listen, this, this message you're hearing, this person that you're seeing healed 
is someone who is healed by Jesus Christ, the Messiah who's come for everybody. And they are wrestling over this. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, how is it that some believe and some reject? Do they need more proof? I mean, I'm not sure how much more proof they need. They've got this guy standing right in front of them. So these religious leaders have this moment here before them where they need to decide, are we going to follow him or aren't we? And essentially what we see is that they end up um, hardening their hearts. Now, it doesn't say that in the text, but we get this great insight in Matthew 23, where Jesus sees the religious leaders before them making this decision. They're, They're faced with, here is the Messiah right in front of them again. And here's what it says in Matthew 23, as they're kind of thinking inside, Christ knows what's going on in their hearts and in their minds. And here's what he says. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Now listen, listen to this. This is what Jesus says. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others in either. Peter just, uh, sorry, Jesus just calls him out and he says, you won't go in. You refuse to go in. They actually harden their heart, even though they've seen all these things before them. And so here are the religious leaders hardening their hearts again, even though they've seen what God has done. So how is it for us, for those that we know, um, but I think especially for those who are you know, exposed to um, religion and Christianity, and this is really the, the context here. How is it that we don't harden our hearts? What kind of position do we get into so that our hearts aren't hardened? Well, we see in, in Romans that it's actually the, the kindness of God. It says this in, in verse 4, it says, Or do you presume on riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's actually God's kindness that is meant to lead us and and ultimately melt our hearts so that we will be open to God's love and his grace and his mercy towards us. There's a great uh, scene in the movie uh, Ratatouille. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a Pixar movie where this rat is is cooking this food in the kitchen and there is a food critic named Ego who wants to eat this food. He doesn't know it's the rat, but he is there coming to judge and he is um, cold, literally he's white, he looks cold and he wants to try this food that they're making that is supposedly you know, getting rave reviews. And then there's another person who's there, he's the ex-chef and his name is Skinner and he's also gonna eat the same thing. So the rat prepares this meal called ratatouille. It's this simple peasant meal. And as they bring it out, they lay it before Ego and they lay it before Skinner at the other table. And it shows Ego taking his fork and piercing the food and putting it into his mouth. And he is instantly transported to his childhood. And it shows his face where his his skin literally comes to life. The, the white coldness disappears and he is melted away as the food connects his, his heart to memories of his past. Skinner, on the other hand, is also there to scrutinize and to, to, 
to essentially be the enemy, be the bad guy in the story. And he takes the food in his mouth and it almost melts him. He's kind of feeling like this tug to towards the same kind of melting of spirit. And yet he pulls it together and he's he just rejects it. And I think that movie captures so well what happens in the heart of many of us when we see the kindness of God. We have an opportunity to be melted by his goodness and his grace towards us. Or we can get hard and cold and reject the message. And we see here that the religious leaders reject it. And ultimately what they're rejecting is the message that that Jesus can use anybody. They reject the idea that Jesus himself, who came in weakness, would be the Messiah that they were longing and waiting for. And so as we kind of draw to the end here of this story, we see that we are invited as well through this story to um, believe that you know Jesus of Nazareth can use any one of us. He can use weak people. He can use people with flaws who are broken to accomplish his purposes here for the glory of his name. And to close, I want to end by um, saying a prayer um, but using Psalm 8, which captures beautifully this idea of this God who's majestic, who's high, but who also delights in us and wants to share in the work that we're doing so that there's this, this partnership between man and God for the glory of Christ. So let's, let's close by listening to this Psalm, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You've taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Amen.